Welcome to another episode of Religionless Church. I'm your CD connoisseur and Religionless Church host, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Michael Wright. Michael is the content curator for the Brim Center and a lecturer on faith and art. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Naivety. Naivety is an indie band from Fargo. You can get connected with both Michael and Naivety and their work in the links in the episode description. In the links in the description, you will also find my website, masonmeninga.com, where you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. If religionless church matters to you, there are two ways you can support. First, give the podcast a rating and a review. This not only offers thoughts and evaluations to others considering listening to the podcast, but it also informs me upon what to improve with the podcast. The second way to support is become a patron of my Patreon page. Patreon is a service where supporters financially support creators. With currently three different tiers varying from $1 to $10 a month, you receive respective rewards for supporting my work. Rewards include papers I write, upcoming Religionless Church episode previews, lectures I create, and much more. The links to connect to and support me and my work, including my Patreon page, are all in the episode description. I no longer wish to be your object cause of desire, as I, with my begging rambling, prevent you from your object of desire of this awaiting episode. Therefore, here it is, Religionless Church. Today, we have Michael Wright. And uh, even though Michael and I have only met once in person, uh, we hung out quite a bit uh, over the couple days this past March. And so uh, Michael isn't just a content curator for uh, the Brim Center. He's not just a spouse. He's not a cat owner. Uh, He's also a friend of mine. So, Michael, you do lots of things in the world. uh, But I'm curious, who is Michael Wright to Michael Wright? Oh, that is a great question. Um, and first of all, thank you for um, inviting me to be on Religionless Church. Mm. I'm excited to mm-hmm. have this conversation, and I'm, I hope that something that we say can encourage people who are listening. Um, who is Michael Wright to Michael Wright? I mean, I, I guess the two. I would answer that in two ways. One, um, I I look to the arts a lot for thinking about personal identity. Mm. Um, so when you ask who is Michael Wright, I immediately start thinking of music and films and paintings and, uh, sculptures, things that have inspired me and kind of thought when I look at them, like, oh, that's, I feel like that, you know, um, Meister Eckhart had this quote where he said, um, the soul projects itself outward into created acts in order to understand itself. And I feel like over the past couple years, I know, right? Such an Eckhart quote. Um, and so past couple of years, like who is Michael Wright? I mean, there's the persona that, you know, there's the Twitter handle, there's the person I think I am, but then there's my ego. And then there's this deeper part of me. And it's a, everyone has this too, beyond their ego, beyond their persona that present to the world. Um, and I don't know, I, I feel like I'm learning, I'm still trying to uncover that self, um, mm. And the arts have been a way to kind of help me do that. It's, I think it really has to do with like belovedness, like 
ultimately who is Michael Wright? Well, it's not like my job title. It's not the fact that I am a cat owner, although that I am. And Milo and I have many fights. Um, and my wife loves our cat. And I mean, I do too, but whatever. And it's not that I'm uh, an achiever. It's not that I'm a theologian or it's not that I'm a writer. Like who I am has to be much deeper than that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we start getting, that's where the art, the realm of the arts are. That's where the realm of spirituality is. That's where we find our belovedness and God, uh, hopefully. And I'm still in that process. Hmm. So as you've been talking about, you do a lot of work at the intersection of faith and visual art. What spawned your interest in that intersection? You know, I think it really started um, in college. I spent a semester abroad and I went to Florence. Hmm. And I remember walking around and... Um, well, I mean, we, we traveled all over, but I remember specifically walking around in San Marco Monastery, and um, there's some really famous murals there that are very surreal, and there's mm-hmm. like Stations of the Cross and images of Christ um, as he's moving on his way towards crucifixion, and, but it's all um, dreamlike, and it's every, there's a mural in every single cell for every single monk. I remember thinking, like, this is gorgeous. It feels so... Um, uh, it, it feels so timely and yet it's so ancient and it's all unified with religious practice. Why, mm. why is that? And why is it not that way now? Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I think I've always been interested in how the arts function in the world. And um, I'm now for the past couple of years, even more interested, especially in contemporary art scene in Los Angeles in particular where I'm living but just the art world as a whole and thinking about the art world is like, can you hear that by the way? Mm-mm. I can't okay, hear anything. Good. Okay. Good. They, they like mowing a, lawns um, next to you too. Yes. I can't escape them. Unescapable. So more recently, my interest has become specifically in contemporary art and the, the art scene of Los Angeles. And I think I got interested in that because I worked on a paper at Fuller where, um, I was thinking about hermeneutics and thinking about interpretation and how the best way to interpret a cultural artifact theologically is to ultimately engage the people who are making it. Mm. Uh, And that kind of spiraling into deeper intimacy and uh, knowledge of the work itself. So like I saw the play Wit by Margaret Edson and felt so confronted by that play because in that play, Vivian Baring confronts the world with her mind and her rationality and, um, being confronted by cancer she learns how to be more embodied and more loving with her ways of knowing and so i decided to do that with that research project and ended up calling margaret edson on the phone and talking to her for a while and i remember her saying to me i was asking her like what do you think i should do with my life i'm looking for a vocation what do you think she's like well i think you'll, you'll be doing what you're doing now and i didn't really realize at the time but i think what she meant is that kind of dialogue with people who are making work uh, and making art in the world. And that's probably one of the most satisfying things that I can do. And so I've gone to a couple of gallery shows here in LA recently. And after writing reviews about them for a local art magazine, I reach out to the artists and I try and do studio visits with them and just have conversation. And that's just been so satisfying because the art becomes a space that the artist and I can have a dialogue about meaning and value and purpose and um and beauty and yeah so those are some of the things i I think about Mm. 
often when I think about a lot of people's interest in something that they're to the point where they're interested in doing it professionally, uh, they may have like a, a childhood experience or a, an experience as a young person that really contributes to uh, actually doing something like that uh, uh-huh. as like a vocation or as something that actually makes them some money. Uh, do you have a childhood experience or experience as a young person uh, where you uh, experience something profound with art and and faith? Uh, and, and if so, yeah. what what was that experience? Yeah, I mean, some of my earliest childhood memories were um, perception memories. Like I remember um, closing my eyes and pushing on my eyes and saying mm. like fireworks in my eyes. Like, what is that? Like, that's so cool. It's so interesting. Mm-hmm. Or like looking up at the ceiling of my elementary school, the popcorn ceiling and, and imagining shapes in them or looking at clouds and, and shapes becoming faces and, you know, and faces becoming stories up in the sky. Um, I remember, you know, like nap time where they would play a, a little recorder of uh, this person telling a story and, you know, your imagination is just carried along and all these other kids are napping. I'm like, How are they doing that? Like, I'm just so enthralled by this story that's being told and being wrapped up in the, the narrative of this imaginative fairy tale so some of those early memories i think are really valuable in that that sense that comes to mind when you ask that question another thing that comes to mind is uh, early memories of i'm from nashville my family moved to knoxville for a couple of years and in that time we we struggled to find a church home and so we went on what my what my brother and i called the great church search so we went to a lot of different denominations and um you know, my parents were feeling restless and we joined them in that restlessness. Mm. So I was exposed to a lot of different denominations. And at the same time, I was also doing a lot of different hobbies. I was trying out uh, a class on magic. I had a exchange student friend who taught me origami. I did a class on cartooning, an acting class. So like, I was just like getting really early exposure to the arts and early exposure to the fact that there are a lot of different ways to do church to those memories as, as being really formative for what I'm doing now. Hmm. Well, what pieces of art have been most influential in your own faith and why have they been? Um, you know, I think back to a time of a really deep depression. Uh, I didn't know I was struggling with uh, clinical depression at the time. I thought it was kind of wrapped up in a, um, a deep spiritual quest, like faith and doubt, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But I was, it was undiagnosed at the time and I was really struggling and I was in seminary and I remember listening to Over the Vines Long Surrender on repeat over and over and over again. And I remember feeling um, accompanied by those songs, like that the ways um, that Karen and Linford were expressing their own um, surrender to suffering and a surrender to kind of moving forward into something new. It was really deeply formative um those were hymns yeah they were hymns for me at that time Mm. um and then i remember going to a local art gallery and there was a painting of some monks that were in a dark room and a a fire was in the middle of their space and the colors are all dark grays and browns and you can't really see any of their faces and um the fires you know is it going out or is it just starting it's hard to tell but the room is filling with smoke and kind of coming out a hole in the roof and I remember seeing that as a seminarian thing, ah, this is how I feel inside. Mm. I feel like these monks. And now when I look at those, um, the, that painting, I think, wow, that, I was really depressed. And I don't really feel that resonance anymore. 
And so that's kind of interesting to kind of look back and realize that these things kind of carry us for a time and then hopefully we grow through them and then we don't need them in the same way. And now, honestly, one of the things that really has inspired me, I can't stop thinking about is, um, you know, when you and I were at the Theopolitics Conference, after the conference, I went to Gregory of Nyssa, the mm. church in San Francisco, and they have a rotunda with, um, you know, almost a hundred saints, all painted, dancing in a circle of Christ being the, the one, um, the one kind of guiding that dance. And then in the middle of the rotunda was the communion table. And I went to that service and I've never, I've never forgotten going to that. And I, I think I'll be thinking about that for, for many, many more years because it was a, a union of art and liturgical practice uh, and community and dance all at once. Like we were dancing around the communion table in a circle mm. and then we took communion and we were surrounded by all of these saints from Francis to Coltrane to Queen Elizabeth. Like it was, it was a very kind of generous selection of saints, you know? Mm. Um, I really felt like we were participating in this cloud of witnesses. And yeah, like I, I wonder like what would it look like if more churches were like that? While we were at the Theopoetics Conference a couple months ago, I told you about my interest in Mark Tanzi, uh, an American painter. Yeah. And uh, I had this experience uh, a couple years back now where your friend Barry Taylor and I, I met Barry at this class that I was taking. And mm -hmm. he started describing the way that Mark Tanzi uh, creates his, his uh, paintings where yeah. he's got like this wheel in the middle that has like multiple configurations that it can be made into. And he sort mm -hmm. of randomly spins it and whatever configuration lands on a certain spot, that's what he's going to paint. Um, yeah. But he also like paints where like he sort of has a, a canvas with a sort of one color or mm -hmm. something along those lines and then kind of actually starts stripping away from it. I'm sure there's some technique that there's a name for it and I just don't know. Um, but anyway, so Barry Taylor's describing this and Barry Taylor was like, that's how I do theology. Mm. And it was a really impactful, really uh, sort of etched in my mind memory. Mm. So I'm curious, what artists have a particular method by which they create their art that has been most impactful in your own faith? So maybe not necessarily the piece, the creation, but the way that they create it seems to be really impactful in your own faith. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, what, one thing first about Mark Tanzi, what I love about that wheel is he's creating conditions for serendipity, you know, he's, mm. he's creating conditions for chance for something unexpected to happen. And I, I think that when we're talking about theology and the arts, often we, we start with theology with what we think we know, and we project that into the painting. 
and there's no room for uh, something unexpected, something mysterious, which is why it was, the, that's why we were at the Theopoetics Conference and what Theopoetics is about mm-hmm. and the whole, mm-hmm. like Richard Kearney's idea of like the anatheistic moment, like this kind of openness to the unexpected. And that wheel, I think, is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I think of other artists, one that comes to mind, and I, I have to um, give credit to my my colleague Maria Fee, who's doing a PhD in theology and culture here at Fuller, and, and a, an amazing artist in her own right. She introduced me to this artist, Theaster Gates. And Theaster Gates, um, he is a Chicago-based artist. Now he's traveling internationally all the time, but he uses art to reinvigorate place and reinvigorate communities. And the process by which he does that seems deeply, deeply spiritual and deeply Christian Mm. because he is working in South side of Chicago and he'll buy up property and he will um, rebuild some of these homes out of the material and detritus around the city. And then he'll turn those properties into spaces for art experiences. So the materiality and the art practice are all wrapped up in reinvigorating space and drawing people into community around the arts. One of the pieces he did that I really love is Sanctum in Bristol. In the UK, he was commissioned to do this um, lean-to in the middle of a bombed-out church in Bristol. And in the ruins, he has this sculptural work that's made out of the wood of the local town. Mm. And then for two weeks straight, there was ongoing performances by local artists None of it was posted. You didn't know who you were going to see when you would go into the performance. But for two weeks straight, you'd go in and you'd be reintroduced to the own, your own, the community would be reintroduced to their own voice in a way. The artists of their community are performing. You go into the space and then it's a sacred space that reintroduces the community to their own artists and to their own work, and mm. to their own beauty. And I love that kind of process of reclaiming materials and reinfusing them with beauty and power. Um, he does that. There's another artist, local LA artist, who's now she's in her 90s, named Betty Saar. She does the same thing where she kind of collects materials from around the city and infuses them with kind of a spiritual resonance into new sculpture. Um, or Noah, Noah Purifoy, who is a artist who did some assemblage artists like when the watts riots happened in la mm. he walked through the rubble and used pieces of the watts riots to create new sculpture um so that to me like when people you know if if we want to talk about what is a, a vision for theology and the arts well let's start with images like that let's start with images like saint gregory of nyssa let's start with people like theaster gates who are um, reinvigorating um, communities through materials and art and sculpture and start with people like Betty, you know. One of my interests in any type of art, whether it be visual or not, is its transformative power to expose and dismantle systems of oppression. Mm-hmm. What pieces of art for you have confronted racism, sexism, and other systems of oppression? That's a great question. Um, it's interesting that activism and issues of gender and race those things are very very uh vibrant um 
debates happening in the art world right now. Like you mm. can, the cover or this most recent issue of Art Forum is all about art and activism. So these are these are topics that, um, as Christians, we we can just participate in. We're not we don't have to bring them to the art world. Like it's already happening. Uh, and I've you know, when I think of work that deals with issues of sexism or racism. I don't want to make any large scale pronouncements, but I'll just talk about my own experience. So I have learned so much um, as a white male looking at paintings by people like Carrie James Marshall, mm-hmm. who paints dignified black bodies in space. Mm-hmm. And I went to the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. They had an exhibition of all of his work. and It was so inspiring. It, um, seeing these beautiful African-American grandmothers like being wheeled around in wheelchairs and in tears looking at these paintings. Like I, I could tell something, I was getting a taste of something that, that I only know rationally, you know? Mm. Um, or I think of Kara Walker, who has some really interesting, uh, challenging works. She had one called A Subtlety that was done in probably like five or six years ago in New York City and an abandoned warehouse. And it was this huge sphinx that also drew on racist imagery of African-American women. Um, and that sphinx was like two stories tall and you could walk around it and it was made out of sugar. And I've looked at those images over and over and over again. And it makes me think about whiteness, makes me think about white culpability and um, in the way that our African-American brothers and sisters have been mistreated, not just through slavery, but like beyond that into malpractice, economic malpractice and like using whole communities of people to prop up the sugar trade. And, you know, all of that, like really um, complex and overwhelming issues of race and economics, it's all in the work, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, or more recently, there is this really great piece. The work is called A Monumental Cloth. Uh, the, art, the artist, her name's Sonia Clark. So Sonia found the original uh, flag, not the Confederate battle flag, but the truce flag that helped in the Civil War. Hmm. So that this is the truce flag that was waved at the very end of the Civil War. And it's just a humble dishcloth. So her piece, A Monumental Cloth, is this massive recreation of this truce flag and she's asking like why why are we using this confederate flag as this um flashpoint in our conversations about race like is not the confederate flag this truce flag what would happen if we flew this flag and at the museum show museum show uh people who visit are actually asked to help recreate a new flag and you you actually get to participate in the weaving of this new massive dishcloth that, mm. you know, and I'm sure like, as you get to do that, you start to think about like, what would it mean for us to kind of weave together this new community based out of confession and based out of reconciliation and based out of a truce rather for some reason, for some reason, this ongoing aggressive Confederate battle flag that doesn't seem to go away, you know? Mm-hmm. It was inspiring to me to see that in a way that she wasn't about like dismantling something. She was uh, she was trying to suggest through artistic practice 
how about we replace this with something better? prompted this conversation to begin with was you wanted to talk about what's happening with art, the art world in general, and uh -huh. spirituality, and uh -huh. how the church is responding to it, or lack thereof. So uh -huh. what exactly is happening in the art world with spirituality, and how is the church responding, and why is this all happening? Um, that's a great question, too. I I, I, well, one last thing before we move on from the, the topics like race and gender, I just want to reiterate too, like I, I see myself as a student of these people. Like I have nothing to offer that they are not saying. Does that make sense? Like mm -hmm. I feel confronted by their work and challenged and I am at the feet of their wisdom in a way. So um, I just don't want that to come across as like, I'm, I'm still struggling to figure out like, what does it mean to be a white male in this world? Hmm. and and how, how do we be a white man in a way that is sensitive to the cultures and experiences of others um yeah so anyway i just that's i'm still just kind of thinking about that with sonia's work and mm -hmm. uh, carrie james marshall and people like that like i i hope that our listeners kind of go on that exploration for themselves and just kind of like learn about some of these really talented african-american artists and, mm -hmm. but on the question of what's happening in the art world of spirituality and what the church could be doing about it. Um, I can't keep up with the amount of interest in spirituality that's happening here in the Los Angeles art scene. Mm. Um, one anecdote that comes to mind is I went to the Freeze Art Fair. It's the first time that art fairs come to LA, it kind of signifies a shift that LA is becoming kind of more of a cultural center on a global scale for the art world. And one of the main, one of the pieces there was a spiritual art advisor. And it was, um, Lisa Auerbach, she's a Pomona College art professor, hosted this 30-minute session where you could sign up and do tarot readings and ask her and her assistant questions about um, any kind of spiritual questions and how, as it relates to art. So fascinating to me that it was happening at the Freeze Art Fair when uh, historically most people assume that religion has nothing to do with contemporary art. Mm. So I, I ended up going to the show um, and I ended up, because of missing the fine print, I left the tent too early and I couldn't get back in. And I was really upset and I was walking mm -hmm. through the back lot. It was at Paramount Backlot Studio. And I ran into Lisa um, in line for coffee of all things. I started asking her questions about the spiritual art advisor thing that she was doing. And she was telling me that she, she found out that I studied theology and the arts. And then she told me that she tried to get access to a seminary library but she was not allowed to and i could tell how um i could tell that was upsetting like i could tell like there was like the disappointment but also the kind of woundedness of kind of like scratching a wound like yet again i'm not allowed to be part of this thing mm. you know and i just stood there and thinking like man 
that just happened to me. Like I, I didn't read the fine print. I didn't understand the art world and I was not allowed access to participating in something beautiful. And so here we are outside of both getting coffee. And I'm just realizing like it, the issue here is not about art as an idea, but the institutions, the social practices, the ways we organize these worlds, we haven't really thought through that carefully enough. So, you know, I've been mulling over this idea, like the most important book uh, Christian can read on um, theology and the arts is nothing I read while I was getting my master's degree in it. It's Seven Days in the Art World by Sarah Thornton. Because she's a sociologist describing the art world chapter by chapter, here's what it's like, you know? So, yeah, I just wonder, like, what would happen if um, we, we put a little more careful attention to trying to understand what are the institutional commitments of the art world? What is a museum like? What do curators do? Instead of going into a church and doing a lecture on the arts, what if we walked across the street and went to the museum together? You see mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like, it's more mm -hmm. about like thinking about art embedded in its institutional setting, which isn't the church always. Right. Um, and going there. And so I think that's kind of the, the critical ambiguity that we need to resolve. Because most of the time when I hear people talk about theology and art or worship and art or whatever, it's liturgical art. We're talking about art of paintings of Jesus, Tintoretto's Annunciation, or you know, some hymnody from the 1800s or worship music, or, you know, we're talking about religious paintings and religious work. That is only one aspect of the art world, of arts in general right now. Mm. And so we're missing um, all of this work outside of institutional church settings that resonates deeply with Christian discipleship. Mm. Um, so I don't know what to do about that other than bring it up and, and me personally start meeting with artists and going to galleries, and learning as much as I can about the, the history of ideas that lead to art practice today, not just me projecting my own theological interests into whatever I'm looking at. Today we have the, well, a couple of the guys from Naivety. Uh, we have Antonio, who is a singer and guitarist, and also plays a little bit of keys. And then a guy who I know. Uh, Tim and I go way back, uh, and Tim, you play drums in Naivety. And I sort of blanked on the fact that you, you guys played together, and then I, I forget exactly how we got connected, or maybe, maybe you were the one that suggested that uh, your band should be featured on the show but somehow some way shape or form I was recommended the band and then quickly realized oh that's the band that Tim was in 
Yeah, I can't remember exactly how it happened, but here we are. It's cool. Yeah, I think I just started following you because uh, Tim just told me to follow you just because I'm like, uh, I'm interested in like theology and like things related to that. So oh. he was, oh yeah, a guy from my hometown does a podcast. So uh, yeah, and I think we like connected through Twitter or something like you and I did. But yeah. Perfect. Well, how about that, Tim? You're, you're, you know, you're still doing evangelism in all the best ways possible <laughs> so uh naivety you guys uh recorded an album and released an album back in 2018 so just about a year from uh ago and it was called endear and I, i'm just curious uh with with you for you personally antonio what what were some of the inspirations that were going behind the lyrics so maybe there were a particular theology maybe there was uh some life experiences that were of influence on this uh album lyrically but anyway antonio what what were some of the inspirations lyrically for this album um i don't know there was oh man we we wrote that so we recorded it last we put it out last year and then we recorded it that year leading up to it but a lot of them are just like really old songs so i have to, mm. I have to think back um uh i think uh i've got so I wrote the lyrics to half of the record and the other half was written by our bandmate Matthias, who is not here today. Hmm. Um, uh, but I, so I wrote in Deer and that's, that's kind of just about my, uh, the relationship between my parents, I guess. Hmm. Uh, a lot of them are like really simple, simple concepts. Um, like uh, Mender is just about uh how relationships can like change over time um yeah i don't know so it's just kind of some simple concepts that like mm -hmm. I to talk about one of the things i'm really and either one of you can answer this one of the things i'm always curious about with bands is um as much as a lot of people focus lyrically on uh what's being conveyed in an album one of the things i'm really always curious about is how the sound, the particular sound for an album is meant to accompany uh, lyrics. So I, I'm just curious, what were some of the sounds that you were trying to capture that might have sort of conveyed some of the themes that you were exploring lyrically on the album? Sure. Um, I mean, I did when I didn't do a lot of like intentional matching of like the sound of our music with our with our lyrics. I think those were like two pretty separate things hmm. uh, uh a lot of the music was written first because i especially when we were writing this album i felt a lot more like a musician than a lyricist and i think i think those two processes were pretty separate for me hmm. uh, so i don't know if um i guess i've just never really thought if like the emotion of the the lyrics matches like hmm. where like musical builds or anything so for you, Tim, what, what was it like for you to kind of conjure up this imagination for what the drums were going to sound like in this album? Dude, honestly, at first it was pretty interesting because um, we started with a, a, a dude that was who's not in the band anymore, but he is like a, a jazz drummer. Like he was going <laughs> for music and he was trained and he was like, super just precise and and really good and just yeah, he's, insane chops but is the mute math drummer what's his Darren, Darren King that's not him but his in um he 
Yeah, that was him. His, he his was happened gonna... to be in this little band from Fargo, North Dakota. Yep. His main influence was uh, was Darren King, and so and you can totally hear it in his playing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So I had those man. expectations to live up to, but no, it was no, it was uh, all the parts are still like written parts that he wrote, and then like some of them are parts that I wrote, and then there are even parts that like Hunter wrote too. We swap. Uh, drums and bass so there's a lot of there's a lot of like kind of like diversity of creativity i would say in Mm. the in the rhythm section of the band for sure which i like it definitely helps i think it freshens up the sound a little bit to have that going on because you can definitely get stuck in like a rut with like playing like similar things on any instrument and then it just becomes like repetitive thing like i'm sure you've heard that with bands before like all right i just listen to the same song nine times i'm just curious about like what do you have for like future projects have you are you guys recording i know it's almost been a year since your last release have you been recording uh any like maybe small tours any shows around the area that you guys are considering yeah we're kind of we're kind of in the writing phase right now um kind of working on like where our sound is going to go for the the next release and uh and just working on in like a like an ep coming up here and uh tours hopefully in the mix <laughs> yeah um, we're uh we well we just played some we just recorded some live sessions at our uh our house that we used to live in well we still live there but we used to do house shows at our house we we recorded some sessions there and we played a new song and that's going to be a single that we put out and then i think we have an ep you know like this upcoming christmas time coming up so perfect yeah well thanks again guys uh i i really i mean i've always known that tim has had a good taste in music and so i knew that the bands that he was always in were always going to inevitably have a good t- uh sound but uh i've really been uh sort of surprised by how good you guys actually really do sound like i mean you, you could put your you guys your guys' stuff in comparison to really kind of any other indie band out there that has like a sort of shoegazy sound. And to be honest, like I mean, you're not going to hear much of a difference. So uh, I really appreciate like how well produced it is, how well written your music is, and uh, yeah, it was kind of this little like bright shining moment to know that I'm going to be able to to share music on my podcast that uh, I really think is tremendous. So thank you again. That's Thank sick. You. Yeah, thanks. Appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. Why do you think uh, the the church institution has this hesitancy against allowing its people to be transformed 
in an art world that maybe is outside of its institutional walls. I mean, it kind of reminds me of uh, I grew up in the evangelical world. So there was mm-hmm. there was Christian music, there was Christian movies, there was Christian TV shows. So it, it didn't want to take away art entirely, but it wanted to make it very explicitly Christian and evangelical. And that was the only kind of art you could consume. Do you think something similar is happening, even if it's not an evangelical institution? It could be even potentially even like a mainline institution. But do you think something is happening in a similar or the same impulse for that hesitancy is uh, is the same impulse that's happening with the whole evangelical nonsense of making distinctly Christian music and Christian movies yeah. and that kind of thing? Yeah, that's such a oh, that's such a um, paradox, right? Because I mean. I, I was so formed by um, so much of that, as many of us were, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I think any conference I go to, we could, anyone I meet there, we could probably start singing some DC talk song from the 90s, <laughs> you know? That's, you know, and um, so I think there's, um, I, I remember going into a Christian bookstore and saying, if you like this band, try yep. this. Yeah, that if, whole if poster. Like Raging, yeah, oh yeah. Yep, I know exactly like, what you're talking about. If you like Rage, if you like Rage Against the Machine, try Project Eighty Six. You know, <laughs> or like that kind of one-to-one relationship. And it, oh man, there's a way in which that that is there. There's something um, good about that. Like there's a tendency to kind of cynically dismiss uh, that time. And I, I can't dismiss it because I was shaped by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love it. I still will go back and listen to like OC Supertones sometimes just for fun. You yeah. Know? Um, but I think you're right. There is a kind of shallow or um, a narrow connecting point for some reason of like uh, that a, a Christian view of culture should just be to replicate whatever is good and make a Christian version of that. Right. Um, that tendency is not great. (laughs) And it keeps us only pursuing whatever is relevant. It keeps us pursuing only whatever is popular. It keeps us uh, always a step behind, anxiously trying to convince the rest of the world that what we make matters. Um, I don't think we, yeah, I don't know. I, yeah, and it even seemed a lot of those uh, quote-unquote Christian artists in that world noticed that too, especially the really good ones noticed that, and uh-huh. they wanted to escape it, right? Yeah. Because yeah. it didn't allow this freedom in their art in the way that they would have hoped. There was, because it, it was set in this Christian parameter, they were, there yeah. was only so much truth and beauty that they could create, right? Yeah, and you know, I think those there were artists that could, for sure, um, kind of navigate those worlds in ways that were uh, and create work that was really like good art, but also meaningful theology. Like I remember when I first moved up to Los Angeles, I was saying goodbye to my old roommate, saying goodbye to family, and I'm um, from from Nashville, and I went to school in Arkansas, and I'm my last time in arkansas i I shut the door my car is packed to move to los angeles i put on faith my eyes by cadence call and just start crying (laughs) you know it's a gorgeous song and it still is 
and yeah, so I guess I think wanna I don't want to make pronouncements like on some kind of national scale, like this is what's wrong, this is what needs to change, or right. But I just get worried that we're we're still perpetuating some of those same problems of creating anemic art. Like I remember I was just in Mexico City for a friend's birthday and we're in an Uber and my wife and I turn to each other and, and just this music's playing, we're like, this has to be evangelical worship. I don't know what they're saying but it has to be evangelical worship. So we, we look up the, the name of the artist and sure enough, he was an evangelical worship pastor. And then we step out of the Uber and we hear mariachi music and it's the, it's so different. Mm. Um, and so I wonder like, why, why is that the case? You know, and Sandra Van Opstal has been working on that too with her work on decolonizing worship, which could easily expand to decolonizing music and art and and really rethinking a christian engagement with culture and art it has to start with like one repenting of, of trying to like only do this one type of thing and kind of aggressively spread it across the world mm -hmm. and then it starts by honestly meeting artists and musicians and seeing what they want to do and joining them you know rather mm -hmm. than trying to make some top-down pronouncements yeah um I think it is possible to have a, a different vision for the arts, a different Christian vision for the arts, but it starts with people and it starts with relationships. It starts with hospitality, with viewing ourselves as guests and, and worlds that artists are creating, not trying to commandeer them for our own ends. Um, and that's just going to take some time, you know, and it's and it's already happening. Mm. So with all this talk about art and faith, uh, we we've been kind of talking about it in this like third person point of view. Uh, I'm curious though, what art do you most enjoy creating, and why? Um, that's a great question. I I so I did. I used to write a lot of songs. I think. That was probably from college through my time at Fuller. I don't write as many songs as I used to. Um, but that's something that's still important to me. I kind of help out at a regular contemplative worship service at a church in South Pasadena where we we play kind of like Taze style songs. And mm. that is really satisfying to me because I need to still my mind because I I work all day on the internet, you know. And I need spaces where I'm slowing down and mm. and opening my hands and releasing things, not stirring up some kind of emotional orgasm, which I feel like a lot of worship music can be. Yeah. Um, so music is still important to me for sure. Another thing that's important to me, honestly, is is working with paper. Like I I still do origami, and I still mm -hmm. make I make hand like notebooks and uh, cards and things like that and it's a good it's good to have practices that are embodied that bring us back to materials in the world um and i, I need to do more of that for sure mm -hmm. i used to draw a lot i should probably start drawing again last question michael how can listeners get connected to you and your work uh yeah the main thing that i do um 
is my still life newsletter. It's a weekly newsletter comes out every Monday. It's beautiful. I love, I look forward to Mondays. Thanks man. Because of it. Yeah. I think I liked, I like sending that on Monday because it's kind of a, okay, here we go. Another week. And it was just, it's a, a way to kind of inspire and remind people like, Hey, there's beautiful paintings and beautiful poetry and spirituality out there that we can be sustained by. Like, have you seen this? You know, mm-hmm. so that, that to me is the work that I love to do. And people can sign up at tinyletter.com uh, slash still dash life. Or we can just argue on Twitter if you want to. <laughs> um, that my handle's M Jeffrey Wright. Those are the main spaces I'm in right now. Um, but yeah, I mean, or they can send me a letter. <laughs> you love that paper. Love that. I do. I do. I learned it from my mom. So we would, another early memories, we would scan our hands as like with peace signs or like I love you sign or a wave. We'd scan them on copiers and like send them to one another. <laughs> um, I think paper is still very valuable. It's a lot slower than screens, which really helps my mind. That's mm-hmm. for sure. Well, thank you again, Michael. This has been a, a wonderful conversation. I always look forward to talking uh, with you. You're a wonderful conversation partner, and uh, your work is really inspiring to me. As somebody who is whose faith has been deeply impacted by the arts, um, I, I really find a lot of uh, I find a lot of overlap in our experience and the cares and concerns and hopes and dreams that we have. And and so uh, I'm glad I've been able to find you not only as a conversation partner but also as a friend. Absolutely. It's, I'm glad to have met. I'm glad we got to hang out at that Theopoetics conference. And I, I hope people interested in that conversation will join us at the next Theopoetic conference. That'd be really fun. Mm-hmm. Thank you again, Michael. Thanks so much, Mason. If that episode left you hanging and you're wanting more from both Michael and Naivety, you can find links to connect to them and their work in the episode description. Again, you can also connect to me through my website, masonmenega.com. There you can find more of my work, including some articles and papers I write, other religionless church episodes, and ways to connect with me via social media. Also, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, If Religionless Church matters to you, support by giving a rating and review and by becoming a patron of my Patreon page. Thank you for listening to Religionless Church. I send you out with this. May the divine bless you with doubt and keep you disrupted. May the divine make the divine's face of infinitude shine upon you and show you graciousness to your own finitude. May the divine lift up the divine's countenance of justice upon you and give you whole unsatisfaction, now and forever. So be it.